Thank you, worship team, for that. And thank you to the teachers who are instructing all of these new babies and children that are headed down to Kids Zone. We are thankful for our Kids Zone and nursery volunteers, even more so this year, as we welcome all these new families and new kids to our church family. Did you see how we had the podium there blocking Pastor Nathan's ramp and approach to the stage? I don't know if he noticed that this morning. Sorry about that, Nate. Hey, I hope you had a good Christmas. Hope that you celebrated Emmanuel. We're going to see what Jesus is bringing to Israel today in Matthew chapter 9. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 9, uh, we'll get started at verse 9. I'm excited to be here wrapping up 2023 with you. 365 days ago I was here in Matthew on January 1st, starting 2023 with you. So it's particularly exciting for me to get to wrap up this year. And I suppose if we were to take a poll about what New Year's is to you, there's different attitudes or outlooks that you might have. I'm sure there's a group of us, probably a large group that can't wait for 2024 to get started. Maybe you got a new relationship or a new job, new things are happening, and there's a blend of excitement and some anxiety. Down with 2023, let's head into 2024 blazing. There's probably another group of you, though, that are still trying to figure out what to make of 2023. Now, a lot happened. A lot happened in our lives. A lot happened in our church family. A lot happened in our country and our world in 2023. Don't you need more than one evening to kind of unpack and understand all that? And then the centrists of you are just like, hey, I'm just in the middle. Like, 2023 is done. We're going to head into 2024. I'm not really worried about what's going to happen. Hey, listen, our prayer and our hope for you as we head into 2024 as a church family and as individuals, and really even for our country, is that you would follow Jesus into the new year. Over the next several weeks in, of January, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, looking at how Christ is renewing his people. He's changing everything. And we're going to meet a group of people who want him to just work within the system that they've built and the system that they're using, and it's just not going to work out that way. So our hope and prayer for you is that you would join him, you would follow him into the new year, and see him renew your life so that nothing is the same in 2024. Before we get into scripture, let me pray and just ask God to use this time for his, his glory. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for using uh, faulty men to explain and encourage the church through your perfect word. Use this time to bless this family and instruct us Minister to us through it and use it to bring you glory and point to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, so if you've been with us for the last several weeks, we have been in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 8, we are following Christ and his disciples as they were in Capernaum. And a litany of miracles happened where Jesus demonstrated his authority over big things. Life-altering illnesses. The uncleanliness laws where he touched a leper and healed him. Jesus had power and authority over even that. And then we follow Jesus as he got in a boat with his disciples and crossed the Sea of Galilee to minister on the eastern shore of Galilee in the Gadarenes. But on his way there, we know that he and his disciples encountered a storm and he further demonstrated his authority when he quieted the storm. The disciples were astounded. In fact, everyone's reaction in Matthew chapter 8 to the works that Christ does is to be amazed and astounded at his authority and his power, and to his teaching, how he teaches with such authority. 
The reaction in the Gadarenes is a little bit different, though. You remember Pastor Nathan covered where Christ enters the Gadarenes and he encounters these two men who are possessed by demons and he casts the demons out. They are living in the tombs out in the edges of society. He casts the demons out into a herd of pigs and the pigs fly down into the Sea of Galilee and are lost. And the community there reacted a little differently. They say, whoa, 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 this is not going to work here. You need to go. Please go. So Jesus is rejected by the area of the Gadarenes, and he heads back across the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 8. Into 9, he's back in Capernaum. And two weeks ago, before Christmas Eve, remember Pastor Nathan talked about how Christ was here to solve the biggest problem. Not maybe the most apparent problem, or the problem that you might want him to heal or fix, but solve your biggest problem as he solved the paralytic's biggest problem. Paralytic's friends brought this paralyzed man to Christ, expecting him to heal them, to heal him as, as he had healed many others before him. And Jesus begins by forgiving his sins. And this is the beginning of this arc of conflict that Jesus will have with the Pharisees as he demonstrates that what he's doing is not going to fit within their system. If, after all, he can forgive sins, what is the sacrificial system for? We, we have a, a program for that. We have a process for that. Jesus has just shown that he has the authority to forgive sins. So that just happened in Capernaum. In this story, as we jump back into Matthew chapter 9, we'll start reading in verse 9 where Christ is still ministering in Capernaum. So Matthew 9, 9 says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel stories, there's these groups of characters in the gospels. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, there's shepherds, there's fishermen, and there's tax collectors, and they all have different characteristics that we've ascribed, we know from history, that are about these groups of people. You know, the Pharisees always seem to have conflict with how Jesus doesn't fit in with their system. We know the shepherds were on the edges of society because they're dirty, kind of farmhands out in the field. And we know the tax collectors are not well regarded. It's important for you to know that about Matthew to see what happens next. That, that Matthew is more than disregarded by his people, but he's looked at as a sellout and a traitor. Because when Rome would colonize an area, they would hire the guy at the best price to collect taxes on their behalf. And as long as you collected what Rome wanted, you could collect extra, skimming off the top, and line your pockets. So tax collectors are looked at as utterly dishonest, despicable people. They have no community with their Jewish brothers and sisters. So Matthew also is a cast-off, an outsider. But he's not really any good to Rome either. After all, he's still a Jew, so Rome's not going to regard him any more than the taxes that he's worth to them. So when Matthew chapter 9 hits us in verse 9, you meet a man who's kind of sitting in between these two realities. He is utterly unacceptable to his own community, and he's used by another. He's just sitting there collecting taxes. And what this would look like is he's collecting taxes for the goods of this area. So the fishermen that are catching fish in the Sea of Galilee are being taxed. The farmers raising crops on the hillsides outside of Galilee are being taxed by him and his co-workers. And he's lining his pockets with the profits that he can make. Well, Jesus sees Matthew in this tax booth and does something that's going to utterly change Matthew's life. He's not going to be a tax collector after today. He's going to be something far greater. And as I was preparing for this time with you guys, I was like, man, we could just stop here. We could stop here and see that Jesus sees Matthew when everyone else doesn't want to make eye contact with him. And everyone else is like, man, you've ripped me off. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And Rome is like, you're just a pawn to us. 
we're here to make money off of you and use you. Jesus looks Matthew in the eyes and says to him, follow me. Maybe it looks something like this. I love this painting because there's a lot going on in it. You have Matthew there in the middle at the, the booth where the men are gathering wares that are being taxed. and There's records being kept, pointing at himself, reacting to Christ like, are you sure you're calling me? Kind of see that gesture to himself. And you see Jesus in the street pointing out Matthew, I want you. I love that Jesus sees Matthew here because that's an experience that Matthew probably didn't have very often in his community. Being on the outside, being this traitor to his people, he probably didn't have people asking him to follow him very much. Somebody's going to take note of that here in a minute, but let's continue reading. So Matthew rose and he followed him. Luke's account of this same story says he left everything. I like to point that out because I think that's important for what a disciple does what it means to follow Jesus. And I like to point that out also because Matthew had a unique occupation as a tax collector. See, he had to be trusted by Rome in order to collect these taxes, and he wasn't going to have community with his brothers and sisters in, in Judaism. But the fishermen that come to follow Jesus, we see them return to fish later on in the gospel story. But I highly doubt Matthew walked back to this lucrative career. In fact, I think that's why we see the party happen later. As people are astounded that a man would walk away from something like this to follow a guy like that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I think one of the first principles that's coming out in this story is that Matthew leaves his old life into a new life with Christ. That day when Jesus looks him in the eye where no one else would and says, follow me, I want you on my team. Matthew gets up and follows him. Our hope for you as a church and you as families and individuals is that whatever happens, if you're looking at 2024 with apprehension, looking at a new year with like, is it going to be more of the same? Is it going to be more to weather? Is it going to be more to endure? That you'd follow Jesus into a new life. Know that you are not alone. He's calling you into this, so he will be with you in it. And we want you to respond to that call as Matthew did. Leave everything. Become a new man and follow him. We'll see how that happens for Matthew, and we'll see how that happens for us as Jesus has a very important conversation. So Jesus calls you to a new life in 2024, a life that he will renew and remake after him. So the story continues. Jesus now is reclining at table. Matthew 9.10 says, As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Luke's account of this story says this was actually Matthew's house. He calls Matthew Levi. A lot of the disciples had multiple names. But Luke says there was a great crowd, a great number of people gathered at Matthew's house. And I think this is amazing. Matthew's like, leaves work early, and his coworkers are like, what is he doing? When we get out of work, we're going to go find out what happened. Jesus is here dining with these tax collectors and sinners. I think it's amazing also that Matthew's first act, he's going to write a gospel story, he's going to be with Christ until the end and go on to be a missionary around the known world. But the first thing he does is invite his friends over for dinner to meet Christ. When the Pharisees see this, of course, they're going to have a comment. When the Pharisees see this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
See, I said it's amazing to me, and we could spend time on the fact that Jesus wanted Matthew, desired Matthew to be on his team, to follow him, to be in his group. Like, how controversial that would have been. And the Pharisees see that, and they're like, to the disciples, because they won't challenge Jesus directly this time. Do you know who your Lord, do you know who your rabbi is associating with? Does he know what these people are like? Yeah, he knows Matthew, he knows these tax collectors and sinners. But the Pharisees are already starting to see, okay, this is not the type of movement that we would organize. This is not the type of group of supporters and coworkers that we would call. Something different is happening here. And they, of course, have all sorts of feelings. But Jesus points out something kind of funny if you read it this way, but let's see what he says. When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those are, who are sick. He says, I'm not here for you. I didn't come for the people who think they've got it all figured out and are, are fine before God. I came for the people who know that they walk with a spiritual limp and have a deep spiritual wound and are sick from the inside out. Because if, after all, the Pharisees have developed this process of maintaining outward cleanliness. Jesus calls them out on this multiple occasions. They are avoiding unclean people and unclean things. And making sure they follow through the the routine of sacrifice and being good Jews from the outside. Jesus says, I want to be here. I'm here as a doctor for the sick. I'm here to care for those who know they can't pull off righteousness on their own. Who can't pull off good spiritual health on their own and don't have it all together. See, when Jesus calls you to a new life, he calls you to a new life with others. A lot of times in the church, we encounter people who are still under this burden of comparison. I come to church and I'm like, man, I know I don't have it all figured out like so-and-so seems to. I know I don't have the nice car that so-and-so seems to have. I know that I'm not as healthy as this family. I'm not as healthy spiritually as these other people. We're still under this burden of comparing ourselves to one another. And Jesus says, this is, this is not how this works. I'm calling all the people together who have the same problem. Because you and I have the same problem. There's a problem that Jesus solved for the paralytic. It's the problem that Jesus solved for you and I. And that we are sick on the inside with sin. That we can't cover it up and fix it on our own by following procedures and routines and sacrifices. That we need the physician to do that for us. Jesus says, I'm going to bring together people who know this and recognize who I am. Because I'm here for the sick. You hear the analogy all the time that the church is, is not a cruise ship for healthy people, or a church is not a country club, it's a hospital where people who are spiritually unwell come and hear, hear the medicine for our souls from the doctor himself. And Jesus says, this is the type of people that I want to bring together. There's a reason why you weren't invited, Pharisees. There's a reason why you're on the outside of this party. See, these tax collectors and sinners know who they are. Jesus continues, though, with the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. This is so profound. Jesus, a rabbi, says to the Pharisees, other teachers, other experts, you have more work to do. If these are the kinds of questions you're asking, you have more to learn. The teachers teaching teachers what they need to know. Now, he quotes a line that is paraphrased or used a few times in Scripture, We'll go to the original source, but read with me, or read along in your own Bibles, but read with me what he says. You can read this out loud. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting a particular quote from the book of Hosea. See, in the book of Hosea, God is using the unfaithful marriage between Hosea and his wife to demonstrate his faithfulness to Israel and their unfaithfulness to him. And over the course of the book of Hosea, you see Hosea's wife leave and return, leave and return, and she's unfaithful to him. What, God, what Jesus is doing by pointing back to Hosea is saying the problem still exists of Israel's unfaithfulness. The problem still exists that they're not holding to their marriage vows. You think you are, Pharisees. This is still a problem. And the questions you're asking show that's the case. I'm going to go back to Hosea 6, verses 4 through 6, just to kind of read you what's happening. In chapter 6 says, God laments what can be done to restore a faithful relationship. I'm not the problem. Israel. He says in verse 4, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Their unfaithfulness has been costly to, to them. My judgment goes forth as the light, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is saying then, and Jesus is reiterating now, I want, I want you to know me more than I want offerings. I want faithful love like a faithful spouse to their spouse more than I want oxes and sheep being slaughtered on the altar. I want you to be faithful in your relationship with me, not self-justifying and self-righteous. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, the one line that they need to hear most, that they need to go back to and see, are they actually living this out? Do they believe this, or do they believe that they're actually maintaining right with God in this? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He goes on, for I came, to call the, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This word for sinners here is the same word for the sinners and tax collectors gathered around him at the dinner. He's saying, I came to, to call those guys. I came to call these people. It's the same word in Luke when Jesus is telling a parable that's oddly similar to this story. He says there's a Pharisee and a tax collector praying at the temple. And the Pharisee stands off by himself because he doesn't want to be around anybody who's unclean and says, I'm thankful I'm not like that tax collector over there. And the tax collector dares just to sit at the edge of church, at the edge of the temple, and beat on his chest and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus tells those listening to the parable, that man went home restored. That man went home justified. In the same way he's saying, I've called sinners. That's why you weren't invited, Pharisees. I've called people who aren't self-righteous. I've called people who know that they have a need. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The disciples of John here are the disciples that followed John the Baptist. John the Baptist is now in prison at this point in the story. And they're trying to figure out, where do we land? Do we follow these Pharisees who seem to kind of have it figured out? They've got a system. We can follow these hoops. Or do we follow this Jesus? And so John the Baptist's disciples have been a part of this crowd that's followed Jesus around Capernaum, and now they come with a question. I think this was sincere. 
They see it's apparent, Jesus, that you are doing something different. It's apparent that some things that matter to the Pharisees and us don't seem to matter to you. They're trying to figure this out. Like, where is he going to fit? Where can we put Jesus so that we can keep moving together forward? How is this all going to work? So they pick out fasting. I think it's on their minds as they see a group of people feasting, enjoying each other's company, celebrating, when they're like, where's the loneliness and the humility and the mourning that we're supposed to have with fasting? Now, is Jesus against fasting? No. Just a couple chapters ago, he gave instructions on how to do it. So we know Jesus isn't against fasting. Anyone who was listening at the Sermon on the Mount would have known that. They're just trying to figure out how come we do this? How come we, have, we um, participate in this and we keep this rule? And you guys don't seem to. Well, Jesus is going to answer their question. Jesus says to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus is, is calling himself God here. If you ever hear that he never called himself God, this is an allusion to the fact that he's the bridegroom. God has called himself the groom of Israel. He's marrying these people to himself, and Jesus says, that's why I'm here. I'm here to do this marriage. I'm here to take you people as my wife. That's why the church is now called the bride of Christ. And he's saying, this is like you saying, why are we partying at a wedding? I'm with my bridal party right now. I'm with the groomsmen and the bridesmaids. I'm here to celebrate. Why would I fast? He says, this, this right now is going to come to an end. He's forecasting his own death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He says, at some point, I won't be with them. When you want to pray and, and when you want to speak to God and really hone in and focus on your relationship with the Lord, then you can fast then. But right now, the Lord is with you. Emmanuel, we celebrate on Christmas Eve, is with you now. He says it doesn't make any sense for our disciples to fast. If it was just checking a box and fulfilling a practice, there's no point to it. But the time will come when they can fast. So the Lord is saying, there's a purpose for fasting. I'm not doing away with it, but now is not the time. I'm with you. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. So if you think of what Jesus is doing, as something entirely new. If you and I, like the Pharisees, see that it doesn't work with the things that we attempt. Maybe you can see the analogy that Jesus is making here. As he has this new cloth that's going to drape over everything. It's going to cover every aspect of Judaism, their nation, their people, and their individual lives. It's going to drape over every aspect of everything that they see. They feel that it's tangibly new and different. They can see that. And what I think he's saying here, and what I think that we try to do sometimes, is say, okay, if I was a Pharisee, is Jesus here to try to patch like a lacking in social justice that Judaism hasn't figured out? Is that why he does good things for poor people? Like, is that, maybe that's what Jesus is here, to teach us just about justice and mercy. And we'll just take just a little bit of what he's doing and put it alongside what we already have got figured out. Because, after all, we've got a pretty good system. So they take everything that Jesus 
is saying and demonstrating is say, we'll, we'll take a little piece of that and use it to just cover, like, we've got to assume that there are faults in our lives. We'll just use it to cover those faults, to patch the system. Because he's saying, you have this worn out holy coat that you're trying to cover yourself in. Holes as in holes, not as in holy set apart. I realize that's a difficult word to distinguish. He's saying, you're trying to just take this new cloth that's unused and patch it over that hole to just use me to fix something. You think that system still works. Maybe you're attached to it because it's kind of sentimental. Man, I'm used to this type of life. I'm used to this system. I'm used to this religion. It's been working all right. I mean, Jesus and a lot of his disciples would submit that it's not working all right. But the Pharisees don't see that. But they try to reduce Christ and everything he's here to do. When he says this is a completely new garment, this is something entirely new to a patch. I think, man, that, that behavior, that drive, that desire to reduce him to just a patch must be down in the core of humanity. Because it makes me think of, when I think of the Pharisees and even myself saying, Jesus is just here to fix this one issue. Jesus is just here for Sunday. And then Monday through Saturday is what I want to do. I think of like, man, it would be awfully hide, hard to hide behind this patch. It would be awfully hard to hide all of my insufficiencies and faults behind one little patch. I think all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve trying to hide themselves from God because they know that they're faulty, but they still try these attempts at self-righteousness and covering so that they can hide from him. See, so Jesus is saying that's not going to work. It'll be a disaster. You have to be entirely new. What I'm bringing is entirely new. And it's by being clothed in him. See, instead of reducing him to just a patch over our insecurity, over that one sin, that pattern that we hope we can break, but really the rest of our life is okay, Jesus is saying you are to be entirely covered, entirely clothed in me. I'm here to completely clothe this system and renew it. Give it something new. Not just patch it up. Not help you make it work. Because it's not. It can't be patched up. It needs to be thrown away. He's saying, you're going to come into this new life. It's going to require you to look entirely different. It's going to require you to put on me. Who I am. Trust me. Not just your own ability to patch up your old life. In the same way, he says, this old garment can't be fixed. It needs to be thrown out. So Jesus is calling you to a new life, clothed in him. Jesus continues the analogy in the parable. He says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. For if it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. If they were fermenting wine in that era and they were going to transport it or store it, they would make sealed containers out of lamb or, or ox hides or sheepskins. And those sheepskins were kind of a purpose-built, single-use vessel. You pour the new wine in, it continues to ferment and expand, stretch out that wineskin, and then it's good until you need to use it. But as that wineskin holds that fermentation and, and holds that wine over time, it becomes formed to just that wine. It's only good for that batch. And it gets brittle and unusable after it's used. Jesus is saying Judaism has served its purpose. And in fact, you've made it something that it never was supposed to be to begin with. 
It was a purpose-built vessel to point you to your need for me. You've added so much to it that now it doesn't look anything like it was intended to. He says, your life also is like this. And I think an application we can make for ourselves is that we're a single-use vessel also. And that Jesus likewise wants to fill you with something. He's, he's made you. He was there when you were made for a purpose, to reveal him to creation, to reveal God's character to the cosmos, to display his image to people around you. And in the same way, that old container, that old vessel of your old life before Christ, Matthew's crooked tax-collecting days, that old vessel is not suitable for him. I have this puffy coat at home. It keeps me warm when it's cold outside. And it's great for a lot of things. But one thing it's not great for, one thing that it's not appropriate for, is to go on hikes in our woods. Because there's thorny plants out there. They hook and tear that puffy coat, and the down spills out, and it's quite a mess. And you think of, like, when I'm going out to take a hike in the woods, it would be, it would be inappropriate for me to go out there in this puffy coat. That's not suitable. That's not what it's for. If we've been clothed, if we are clothed in Christ, and we are a purpose-built vessel for him, maybe the questions we can ask ourselves in 2024 is, clothed in him, is this appropriate for me? Clothed in Christ, is this, is this choice appropriate for me to do? If I'm clothed in Christ, do I have to do this anymore? Is this what I'm meant to hold as this new vessel? Is this what I'm meant to carry? Or am I meant for something different? Is there things that are now are inappropriate for me? Thoughts that are inappropriate for me? Words and actions, deeds that are inappropriate for me? Because I've been made new. I have a purpose by my creator to carry his spirit. Christ is calling you to a life a new life filled with his spirit. The imagery here of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit working inside of you, changing you. Your life is now formed to contain that image, to display that image. The old container, the old wineskin, crusty wineskin that served its purpose, it demonstrated that that will not work and you need him, is done away with. Paul talks about this old person and new person imagery in Colossians 3. Verse 9, he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, have cast that off with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Jesus is saying that this is what he wants for his followers. This is what the Pharisees need to hear. This is what you and I need to hear, that as we step into 2024, whether you're following him for the first time, maybe you don't know him as your Lord and Savior today, and you realize that the wineskin is old and crusty and has served its purpose. You need new life. That that patch has not solved, whatever that patch is, has not solved the problem. If it's isolation or elitism or addiction or escapism, whatever you're doing to just try to cover that one chink in your self-righteousness armor is not working. Be clothed with him and filled with the Spirit. So with others... I'd say abandon isolation. Matthew was isolated because he was judged and used by the people around him. There are people who come to church and are isolated because they compare themselves to others, positively and negatively. Another way this could be said is abandon elitism. Because after all, he called us all together. We all have the same illness. He is the doctor. You're not. You're not the nurse practitioner even. We're the patient. So come into church knowing that the people that you formally compare yourself to are just like here, you 
They're here to worship their creator. They're here to worship the, the sovereign physician who is the only one who can solve what's truly their problem. Jesus calls you to a new life clothed in him. So don't reduce him to a patch. I think of this often because I struggle with this too, that, that he lives in certain areas of my life and that he dwells in certain areas of my thought life and that he covers certain parts of my week with his work and then the rest is my time. As if he's just like a tenant in a building that I own. Well, what if you thought about it as you're, you're completely clothed in him? See, this is really good news because when God, the righteous judge, looks at you, we believe, as Christ followers, we believe he sees that clothing. He sees that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ instead of seeing all the holes and wounds and mess and just ugly stuff because of the decisions you and I make. He sees that you're clothed in Christ's righteousness. So this year, don't reduce him to a patch. Ask that question of, like, if, if I'm clothed in righteousness, if I'm clothed in Christ, can I do this? Is that what a person clothed in Christ does? And lastly, Christ calls you to a new life filled with his spirit. So be that single purpose vessel he made. He made you to contain his image and display it to the cosmos. Demonstrate his character to people around you. And he equips you to do that. You're not on your own in that. He equips you to do that by the filling of his spirit. So do away with that old man. Cast off that old man. Put on the new man of Christ. And head into 2024 renewed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you would even call folks like me. That you choose people. And you love them not for what they've done or how they clean themselves out up on the outside, but because you made them and you care deeply for us. Help us to truly see that care for us this year as we focus into the new year. Help that to transform us as individuals, us as a church. Help that to grow inside us like fermenting wine. Help it to radically change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.